The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about several fascinating studies that were done by the Poneman Institute. And, of course, we are so thrilled to invite back our very, very wonderful friend and one of our very best guests ever who comes back on at least once a year. We're going to be talking with Dr. Larry Poneman, and he is one of the most respected voices in privacy, data protection, and information ethics in the world. In 2002, he founded the Poneman Institute, which is headquartered in beautiful Traverse City, Michigan, and it is the preeminent research center de- dedicated to advancing privacy and data protection practices. And prior to founding the Institute, Dr. Larry Poneman was a senior partner at Price Waterhouse Coopers, where he had led compliance risk management services for the worldwide fir- firm. And he has served on the Federal Trade Commission's Advisory Committee for Online Practices and currently serves as chairman of the Council of American Survey Research Organizations Government Policy Advisory Committee. He has a very long resume that I could go on and on and on, but I want to talk to him. I want you to hear him. He's a wonderful man. He's brilliant, and I love him and his wife so much. And so thanks for coming on all the way from Michigan, Larry. We just truly honor you. Larry, what a beginning. <laughs> what an intro. Thank you again. I love being on your show, so thank you. It's a wonderful a wonderful experience and an honor to be here. Well, I, I love to read your surveys as well, and I have three of them here that I wanted to talk. One is actually the on uh, the fourth annual benchmark study on patient privacy and data security. Mm-hmm. Another one, the aftermath of a mega data breach, consumer uh, sentiment, and then the 2014 cost of data breach study in the United States. I know you do this every year for, it's been the last nine years. And then this really new study about visual hacking experimental study. So mm-hmm. let's start out with and try and get through at least some of the really salient points of these sure. wonderful studies. So let's talk about first the, um, the data breach. Now you've been doing this for nine years already. Yeah, we have to get a life, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, d- these data breach issues just don't go away, and it really affects consumers and companies. So, Absolutely. 
What are the root causes of such breaches? Well, you know, most people think of the root cause as some really evil person maybe in in Russia or in China, and they're going to hack a system and steal data. By the way, that does happen on occasion, but the majority of data breaches occur because of mistakes, good people doing stupid things, yeah. and also system glitches, you know, software or hardware that malfunctions and causes data loss or leakage or gives people the wrong information. An example, and this might have happened in your life, it certainly has happened several times in my life, where you get a statement from your doctor or from your telephone company, and you open the envelope and it's to someone else. Right. Now, that might not seem like a data breach, but it is a data breach, and data breaches like that can be very costly to companies. And it can be very upsetting to a consumer also. If I if I get somebody else's credit report or if I get somebody else's um, hospital uh, report or something like that, that could be really embarrassing. So It is definitely embarrassing, especially when they get my information. <laughs> <laughs> or mine. So let's talk about the factors that influence the cost of data breaches. People don't realize how expensive that can be. Yeah, we, we estimate, at least in our most current study, a total cost of a data breach at about 5 to $6 million on average. Mm. And it's not chump change, even if you're a huge company, but that boils down to about $201 per compromised record. So when people say, well, you know, the cost of a data breach is I have to notify people so I put a big ad in USA Today, and or I send a crummy letter, uh, you know, with a, a first-class postage, and I'm done. There's a lot more that happens, and plus there are consequences of a data breach, like loss of reputation, customer turnover or churn. Those kinds of things really can be very, very expensive to a company. Yeah, really embarrassing for their reputation. If you think about, you know, the the Target data breach, that yeah. was pretty horrible. It, they're all horrible. Target was interesting just because the consequences were so bad that they ended up firing the CEO. And But we actually now are seeing organizations, boards of directors, saying, look, we have to get this under control. If we have lots of data breaches, we're going to lose lots of money. We're going to lose reputation and maybe have a declining value of, of, of stock price. Money talks in this case, and it seems like more organizations re- recognize that there's a potentially expensive, this could be a, a very expensive proposition if they don't have more controls over data loss or data protection. Right. And a lot of the IT departments didn't used to get the kind of resources and money that they needed. But now I think that's changing because, <laughs> you know, it wasn't a profit center like marketing, right? So um, exactly. it was kind of like the, the stepchild of, of all the departments in a big corporation. But is that really changing now? Yeah, you know, we've been doing another study, again, Getting a Life. This is a tracking study that we've mm-hmm. done for about nine years. And what we were able to determine is that the amount of dollars earmarked for security, especially around data protection, has steadily increased by a rate of about 20%. Mm. But in the last year or so, that number, it looks more like a 30% increase. So you're absolutely correct that more and more companies are taking security, data protection, and privacy seriously, and they're budgeting more dollars, That's which important. is a good, yeah, good situation to be in right now if you're in the security industry. Yeah, I bet this is, and we're sitting here on the campus of the University of California, Irvine, so if you're listening and you're a student and you don't know what to go into, I think into um, you know electronic security and any kind of security, and IT is probably a, a great place to to start thinking about <laughs> a career right <laughs> that's right it's there, it, there are probably three to four job opportunities for every qualified graduate 
Mm. And that, that's not just me talking, but that's based, based on a study conducted by the NSA. Mm. Um, so there's definitely great opportunities for people who really find this whole area interesting. You don't have to be a hacker, by the way. <laughs> there are lots of aspects of security, inc- including the development of policies and procedures and training. Um, so you don't necessarily need to be what we refer to as a gearhead, although that's a very cool skill that's called a white hatter. Oh. That is um, hacking but for the good guy to basically right. see vulnerabilities in systems. Yeah, that's great. Now, we also are right here in this, like, it's like a mini Silicon Valley where we have Aliso Viejo and a lot of startups and a lot of, uh, you know, different organizations, technology companies. So tell us about the likelihood of an organization having a data breach. You know, we have a lot of business people who drive by and listen. So what about them? Do they have to worry? Yeah, every organization, even small mom-and-pop companies, can be the victim of a serious data breach, one that's very expensive. In fact, smaller companies may be more vulnerable. And the reason for that is just because companies small doesn't mean it doesn't have access to large amounts of data. And so the key variable is what causes a costly data breach is the size of the data breach is probably the most important variable. Yeah. So again, if you're in a business where you collect information like big data, you have a responsibility to protect it. And if it doesn't get protected and it leaks, ends up in the hands of bad guys, you can be in a world of hurt. Exactly. Very expensive. So, so you know, before we move on to another study, do you have any suggestions for our business owners that are driving by and our CEOs? Right. So this is primarily to the CEO. Um, <laughs> take responsibility. Make sure you know what's going on in the security, data protection, and privacy issues within your organization. Um, this is no longer just a middle-level manager having total responsibility. It's ultimately the responsibility of the CEO and if you're a publicly traded company, definitely if you're a director, you have to worry about this because there's personal liability that's probably going to occur or start occurring in the not-too-distant future. So the key variable is take responsibility, have a good governance process, make sure you have the right tools and the right people in place, and then you'll be able to sleep at night. Yeah, and spend some money on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, don't just think about your marketing. And how about the smaller companies? Should they outsource this kind of thing? Great question, by the way, Mari, and the answer is yes. Um, A lot of the skills that you need to have a strong uh, cybersecurity defense and good data protection activities, this is expensive. So if you're a company, you know, Fortune 100 company, it's not a problem to basically build those resources in-house. But if you're a small company or even a middle market company, a managed service provider, a company that provides good information security, Maybe even privacy and privacy-related activities can be very valuable. So there are companies that have emerged over the last, oh, I don't know, five or six years that really do a great job. Uh, one, by the way, is um, Experian. They, they have a division dedicated to uh, helping organizations with data breach and yeah. the protection of their personal information. They do a great job. Yeah, and it's important when we think, you know, I, I read somewhere that uh, 80 to 90% of all companies in, in the United States are really small to medium-sized companies. Sure. So, yeah. you know, with that, there there should be something like conglomerations to help these smaller and mid-sized companies because, like you said, a mom and pop could could be selling all over the world and have credit card information and personal information about people, social security numbers. They could have everything. 
and and they can experience the same kind of breach that anybody else can. Absolutely correct. And so there are these companies that have emerged over the last, oh, maybe decade, more like the last five or six years, and they do provide good quality service, and organizations should consider that as, you know, another facet of their business. They should be looking at ways of complying with these new laws and regulations and also protecting their customer from, you know, bad things like the negligent employee or the cyber criminal. Right, right. Or the or the dirty employee, not just or negligent. The, yeah, the, or, uh, the some... evil employee. <laughs> <laughs> Wearing the dark hat, right? Uh, that's right. They're not the white hat. They're uh, the black hat. <laughs> right. So let's move on to how the customer how the consumers feel about this. You know, you have a study called The Aftermath of a Mega Data Breach, and we were just talking about Target, and there's been Nordstrom and, oh, many, many. Even Goodwill. Can you believe that? They hacked Goodwill. (laughs) I mean, of all... That is funny. That well, it's not funny. It's sad. It's not funny, but it's a sad state of affairs. <laughs> exactly. So, what are some of the consumer perceptions about organizations? I, I think uh, consumers are confused. They really, and again, not every consumer, because we're consumers, and I'm not sure we're confused about this. But a lot of consumers really don't understand the issues very well. They somehow think that an organization has the power to control the data in a way that you could basically have a zero tolerance for data breach or data loss. But um, so consumers, in my experience, are the start of the problem just because they don't understand the issues. Now, if they understand the issues, they can do certain things to defend themselves, but they're not perfect. And organizations, by the way, sometimes do a horrible job communicating through policies and awareness activities to consumers about what they do with the consumer's personal information. So consumers hate a data breach. Yeah. When when a data breach occurs, people look at that event as a very, very negative event. And even if it's not grounded in reality, they start to think that, oh, my God, the very high probability because of that data leak, I'm going to become an identity theft victim. It's like, you know, a 90% chance or an 80% chance, which is, by the way, not true, but that belief drives behavior, and ultimately consumers drive the train because if they don't like a company, they discontinue working with that company. They no longer buy products or services from that company. So it could ultimately be very costly to companies not to understand their consumers or their customer. Yeah, and so it's it's a real problem because sometimes the consumer uh, overreacts because they, they don't know really what, what has been stolen. You know, it may not be a social security number. It may not be anything except maybe their name, which could be, you know, anywhere on the Internet, right? Right. And and it goes the other way, too. For example, there was a pretty good-sized data breach at a company. I I don't want to mention the name of the company, but they're called eBay. (laughs) 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 And uh, and they actually did a pretty good job on this. Um, But basically, the information that was potentially exposed was username and uh, password. Um, as I understand it. And um, now, most people don't realize that that doesn't seem like, well, that's just my username. Everyone knows my username. And password, well, anyone could figure that one out. But if you had to talk about the crown jewel for a cyber criminal, it's the authentication information. Right. It's not social security number. It's not credit card information. It's none of that. It's just basically, how do I take information about Larry Poneman, steal his credentials, become of an imposter, and get a whole bunch of data, maybe some money, <laughs> uh, create a, a bunch of havoc for yes. for the uh, for the individual? So again, consumers 
are not paying attention to these types of data breaches as they should. And and also, if they use the same password for their securities account and for their bank account that they do maybe, you know, for getting into the Orange County Register or something, sure. you know, that's that's a huge difference as well. So, yeah. You know, I think, unfortunately, like, you know, you're so brilliant on this. I mean, you, you're in this, you live this day and night, and I'm not as brilliant as you are. But, you know, I have a better handle on it than most uh, other consumers. But the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, to put the burden on consumers when things aren't transparent, when they have no idea what's really happening, right. I think it's really, I, I think it's unfair, really. It is unfair. I know I was a little hard in my comments before about consumers not understanding the issues, Consumers have a lot to think of. Yeah. You know, this is not their full-time job. But I think organizations, not, not every organization, but many organizations, do a really poor job in communicating what they do with the information they collect. And worse than that, they do a bad job, in my opinion, in many cases, not in all cases, right. protecting that information. Yes. You know, because they basically are sloppy or they don't believe they're going to be, you know, the target of a big data breach or they don't think it's going to affect reputation. And for whatever reason, despite all of the, you know, the stories that we read about, Targets and the Goodwills of the World and Neiman Marcus, it's still, a, a, there's a lot of... Um complacency about the whole thing. Yeah, I think the people the people that I talk to, Larry, I think they just feel impotent. Like, what can I do yeah. about it? It's it's beyond my control anyway. I mean, if it happens, I get aggravated. I don't know what to do. I mean, should I only use cash? I mean, people are, are just, you know, overwhelmed. And, and then when you get some of these really bad identity theft cases that I've been hearing lately, where people's, you know, they, they do this synthetic identity theft where they sure. take a name and then they take somebody else's social security number and kind of make this whole conglomeration and then they can't get help from any of these companies. But the person who has the social security number is really the fall guy anyway, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's still, you know, I've been talking about identity theft and all this stuff for years and it just seems to not really go away. <laughs> you're you're the expert's expert, really, and you know that uh, it's a big problem for lots of people uh, yep. and organizations. And we, I think, we should come together and figure out a way of doing this better. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we do at Poneman Institute, as you know, because you're an, a fellow of our institute, is creating responsible information management practices. Yes. And we should probably think about writing the credo. Like, what does that mean for consumers, and what does that mean for organizations? Great idea. Great yeah. idea. <laughs> and you could share that activity if that's okay. Oh, I would love to do that for you and help <laughs> okay, you Okay, got that on the radio. Uh-oh, uh, 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 uh. <laughs> <laughs> The contract. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, this whole thing relates even to, like, the privacy and the security breaches with with medical information that I think is just really uh, even worse than some of the other kind of information that gets out. I mean, if it's if it's your credit card information, okay, you can cancel your credit card. You're not going to be held responsible. But if you have a data breach with all of your medical information, and I was just called by um, a lawyer about that just recently, that there is a big case that 
all sorts of information, including medical information and social security number and all that stuff, was breached by a hospital. So let's let's talk about the um, your benchmark study on pri- patient privacy and data sure. security. Yeah, we, we love the study. We do it every year. It, it's, again, a, a labor of love. A lot of these studies require lots and lots of time to recruit companies to participate. Sometimes it takes over a whole year to get a company to participate. But we basically have been doing this now for a few, uh, for several years. Well, not several. Then we're going to year five. And what we basically find is that organizations, healthcare providers are, there's good news, they're doing more and better things to protect patient data. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> but now that's the positive. The negative is because they are users of disruptive technologies, especially mobile, like tablets, yes. as a replacement for paper files, right. coupled with the change, changing world of healthcare, the move to uh, the ACA and then the Affordable Care Organizations, ACOs, and all of these different changes is creating a, a, a lot of vulnerability. And so despite all of the improvements in healthcare, we are seeing data leakage, and sometimes it's pretty serious. And it's the type of data that you mentioned. It's your health record, or it could be payment data coupled with your health record. A health record has just about everything in that, that is known about you, including your weight, your height, yes, including and- your, your payment details if you're in a copay. Right. Um, so it's a, it's a big problem, and it's a type of information that the bad guys love because they could use that one record for lots of different types of attacks. And even your health insurance. So somebody can use your health insurance as well. I know you've done studies on medical yeah. identity theft. So that kind of stuff is crazy. But you know what really shocked me about your benchmark study is you, you had in here that criminal attacks on healthcare systems have risen 100% since you yes. started doing that study. Wow. It is a wow. It's amazing. And well, there, there are two possibilities too to that number. One is that it actually increased because bad guys discovered one day that medical records are really great things to have if you're trying to commit an identity crime. So I, we think that's the reason. But there's another possible reason, and it may not be either or, maybe both, that we basically now know that more healthcare organizations are investing in security technologies that make them smarter about attacks. Oh. And it's possible that some of these organizations were attacked, but they were just, I call it ignorance is bliss. Yeah. They were not paying attention to the details. Now they have the tools to tell them that they are, in fact, a victim of some form of hack or some kind of an attack against their system, resulting in data loss. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I think of all these poor veterans, right? I mean, oh, oh, I mean that's been the, the, the biggest news. And how, how are they improving in terms of how they're getting together their security and their privacy practices? Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, it's funny because if you look at the VA system, it's probably the largest healthcare system in the world. Exactly. Um, in terms of budget. Uh, and with all of that money, it's, uh, the, when we hear about these terrible stories and how veterans are treated, I'm a veteran, so. Yeah. But I would, thank God I'm not in a VA, having to go to a VA hospital. But, you know, do we, veterans should get the best of the best, the best health care. And, in fact, it looks like they're getting the worst in some cases, maybe not in every case, but definitely in some, some of the hospitals that you know, were committing all sorts of nefarious criminal activities. It's very, very depressing. And, yeah, I read today in the news also that, like, the, the average time for people to wait, if you're a veteran, to get into the VA for an appointment is... 90 days. Yeah, so when you're sick, yeah, <laughs> 90 days, that doesn't make sense. When I'm sick and I want to go right then and there, I want to get in today or tomorrow, right? 
Yeah, it's 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 very sad, and uh, you know, I've uh, I'm not sure if you've ever been to a VA hospital, but I have. Yeah, you see these people who served valiantly in war and you know, lost everything, and that's their home. You know, the VA becomes a place where they live yes. without the rest of their life. It's a very sad environment in many cases. Mm. We could do more about it, making that better. Anyway, I know it's off track a little bit, but no, it does but it, relate. It relates, to sure. Now, you were talking a little bit about the Affordable Care Act. Now, does that increase risk to patient privacy? Yeah, that's a great question, and we actually did ask it, that question. It was the perception of clinicians. Is it going to increase data loss or data leakage? And the answer is yes. And you say, well, why? Because there are new things that you have to do, new forms you have to fill out, more information that you have to collect about the patient. What happens when there's more uh, stuff going on? It adds complexity, and then more mistakes can be made. And, and if you're a bad guy and you understand the changes in healthcare, that becomes an attack vector because you say, well, they're not going to be able to detect this problem for a while because it's so complex. So the Affordable Care Act, that the shift to the Affordable Care Act creates all sorts of problems, not just the big famous website, you know, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. has problems in and of itself, but just generally it creates problems. But also there are things like health information exchanges, uh, uh, ACOs, yeah, yeah, and other places where data from individuals and clinics and hospitals are merged. So you create these mega databases. And anytime you create a mega database, even if you promise security and uh, like nearly perfect security, you're never going to get there. Um, and that's a treasure trove to the bad guy. So it makes it easier because all the data is now centralized. So I think there are potentially interesting challenges ahead in healthcare. Yeah. And I don't think that there's really enough of the resources to, to deal with. You know, now we're trying to get everybody into the system and more people, more data, more challenges, more confusion. Yeah, it's uh, it's hopefully within the next five or ten years it'll get it under control. <laughs> yeah, it might be more like 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be optimistic. I know, okay, right. 37.5 <laughs> years. <laughs> Well, kind of let's switch gears because I just r read your new study, your brand new study for August on the visual hacking experimental study. I thought that was interesting because people don't even really think about visual hacking. We've been talking about electronic yeah. hacking. Everybody focuses on that. So tell us about this study. Well, thank you for bringing this one up. This is brand new. In fact, it's not officially published. Um, it's sponsored by 3M and the Visual Privacy Advisory Council. You know something about that because yeah. you and I serve on that council. Yeah. But basically, it is a, a study that tried to understand how vulnerable are organizations to visual hacks. A visual hack is very simply a person, maybe an imposter, a criminal, a bad guy, pretends to be like, say, a temporary worker um, or a contractor, and they enter a secure space like an office, and they actually look and try to see if there are documents, pieces of information they can collect. And this could be kind of the upfront work uh, that a bad guy does to commit a big cyber attack, because we know a lot of cyber attacks involve the yin and the yang, the external attacker and the malicious insider. Right. So we wanted to understand how pervasive the problem is, and we did. We actually did it. It was a complex study, an experiment to conduct, but we basically had organizations um, participate in, and they're all, and specifically in office settings only. We had 43 different office settings, and we basically had an actor, someone pretending to be a temporary employee, and we asked that actor or researcher to determine how much information they can glean in two hours. And what we found in 88, and I hope you're sitting down here because this statistic is shocking. Yep. Because we expected there to be, you know, like 
30% of organizations were hacked by the visual hacker, you know, the actor. And we basically had 88%, only only of the 43, only five organizations were not hacked. That means... <laughs> 88% were hacked. And they were hacked. And the type of information ranged from customer information, contact lists, employee directories. You know, again, you don't think of that as being top secret, but an employee directory could be used for social engineering purposes. Right, right. So you don't, you don't want that in the hands of a bad guy. And a whole bunch of information, including privilege, you're going to love this, attorney-client privilege information. Yeah. So and financial, really, I saw here, financial accounting and budgeting information. Budgeting information. So it was, you know, the whole gamut. Um, and we basically saw that it was consistent throughout all of the office locations where we conducted the experiment. We also had something else in the study. This, that, was, that was the kind of the the interesting empirical question. But we also had a little bit of fun because we said, it's not only about the hacker, but the people in the office, are they paying attention to this stranger showing up and doing odd things like walking around the office? And then we also had a, a, a more overt uh, a task in the experiment, and that was um, the, the hacker, the actor, grabbed a stack of papers marked confidential and put it into a briefcase in front of people. Yeah, I read and we, that, yeah. And then, and then if that didn't work, finally we had the hacker standing in front of a screen with their cell phone, you know, their camera. And taking, taking pictures. pictures of the oh, so you can't be more overt than that. I mean, you'd, you'd have to be like with a big drum or something at that point, a kettle drum. <laughs> but we, what we found is that in 70% of the cases, 70%, we, the people didn't confront the actor at all. They just continued to do whatever they normally do in the office. In 30%, they were confronted, but only one case out of 43 where the person, the office worker, actually contacted his supervisor or her supervisor in this case. Uh, so it basically shows pretty clearly that there's a lot of hacking that can go on in the normal office environment. And what accelerates this problem is the fact that in the olden days, when you worked in an office, you at least had a cubicle. You had some private space. Right. But now, many of these organizations now have the open floor plan where you basically are, you know, um, shoulder to shoulder with your neighbor and, and there's no division. So therefore, you know, people coming in on a part-time contract can basically see all sorts of information. Well, it's fascinating, but we are out of time, my dear friend. This is a fascinating thing, and I think people will start to think about that and be more, um, you know, observant in the workplace. So we will have you back again, Larry. You are Always. wonderful, Dr. Larry Poneman. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org and on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.